Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you laugh anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. He said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against us as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. And they seized him, led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, when he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, 
prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Speak to us this morning in your word. Father, we ask that you would convict us of our sin, that you would show us Christ in the way of salvation, and that you would lead us by your word in a life that is honoring and glorifying to you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. You may be seated. Many of you, if you took your American history classes growing up, have probably heard the name Benedict Arnold. He was an officer in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. During the war, Benedict Arnold was involved in some fairly important conflicts, as well as some less important conflicts. On the important end, he was a part of the attack on Fort Ticonderoga and the Battle of Saratoga. And then on the less important end, he was a part of a failed attempt to attack and capture Quebec, which I think is very interesting. You've seen the movie Canadian Bacon. It's not the only instance of Americans attempting to make a northward invasion. But Benedict Arnold is pretty much known for only one thing, isn't he? He's known for being a traitor. And so that's one of the reasons now, if, if you hear somebody call a Benedict Arnold, you're calling them a traitor, someone who's a turncoat, who's turned against their friends. And similarly, from our passage today, we see that when someone is called a Judas, it means pretty much the same thing. To call someone a Judas is to call them a traitor. And I think in just about any story, whether it's a fictional story like Edmund in uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or a historical story like Benedict Arnold and Judas in our passage, it's always the traitor that we most love to despise. We always, in any, any given story, have a dislike for the enemy, right? But there's a special kind of dislike that we have for people that turn on the good guys, for people that deny and desert and betray and disown the good guys. And I think it's easy for us to despise traitors until we recognize that we are one. And this morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to be covering a really big chunk of verses. So I'm going to try to keep the main idea very simple for us. And it's this, that we are all traitors, but Jesus is a friend for traitors. We are all traitors, but Jesus is a friend for traitors. And again, to keep it really simple for you, those are going to be our two main points today as we go through the passage. So let's look at our first main point, we are all traitors. There's a couple of keys, I think, to understanding this passage and interpreting it correctly. And the first is to understand that there are multiple levels of things going on in the passage. On a first reading, we notice that there is a human level, that there are disciples, we see Jesus, and we see this crowd who's come to arrest him, Peter, we have these human actors, right? And of course, I'm not saying that Jesus is only human. But beyond that layer of the human actors and the human level, there is a spiritual level that is going on. Satan is at work deeply in this passage. 
We see that right away if we look at the first two verses, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. What's interesting in verse 31 there, both of the yous are plural. Jesus is saying that Satan demanded to have the disciples. Satan wanted to try them, to try to shake them, to destroy them, to get them to desert Jesus and to turn on Jesus. There is a spiritual battle that is going on throughout the entire passage that we look at today, where Satan is at work trying to destroy the disciples. And that's going to be necessary for us. We're going to read through the rest of this passage and really understand what's going on. We can't just look at that human level. We have to be able to look beneath it to what is going on in the spiritual realm. But then running right alongside that spiritual level, as I mentioned, there is also a human level. And this is where we're going to see that there is a deepening disloyalty of men throughout this passage. A deepening disloyalty. And we're going to see false confidence, misunderstanding, desertion, betrayal, and denial. So the deepening disloyalty begins right away in verse 33. It begins with false confidence. Jesus had just told Peter that Satan was going to try to destroy him. Then how does Peter respond? He responds in his normal, bold manner, with arrogant and ignorant self-confidence. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Oh, really, Peter? Are you really ready? You think you can handle what Satan's going to throw at you. But Peter, you have no idea. You are not ready. So Jesus replies, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Oh, Peter, you're so confident in yourself, but you will deny Jesus. You will fail. I think we are often also so arrogantly self-confident in our ability to fight against sin and temptation. We think that we can do it on our own to the point that we ignore Jesus' warnings. So let's not be like Peter here. But the problem progresses, it moves beyond just this false confidence and self-confidence and moves to misunderstanding. So look with me to verses 35 to 37. So Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Jesus here is referring to what we saw earlier in Luke with the sending out of the 70 or 72 disciples, and he ordered them not to take any extra provisions, but the Lord provided for them. So they answer and respond, nothing. We, we lacked nothing. So Jesus goes on, but now, something is changing here, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. What Jesus is saying here that is that the time for his sacrifice has come. And that means that everything is going to change for the disciples. Nothing is going to be the same. 
Things aren't going to function the same way that they did before. They needed to be prepared for the spiritual battle that was going to come upon them. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know that it's been a regular theme through Jesus' teaching and leading up to the cross. And he's telling his disciples, be ready, be prepared for what's going to come. And that continues right through our passage again. So what did the disciples do? The disciples go, they grab a couple swords that they had, they walk up to Jesus and say, Hey Jesus, look, we've got a couple swords. The disciples completely misunderstand what Jesus is asking them. And this is where we have to remember what we saw right at the beginning. Jesus is talking about a spiritual battle with Satan that is about to take place. But they think that Jesus is talking about a physical battle. So they go out and grab swords. I think when we look at the passage, their desire to fight a physical battle is obviously wrong for at least three reasons. And the first is in Jesus' response. Jesus says, it is enough. What he's not saying there is two swords are enough. Because that would be laughable. The crowd that they're about to face, armed with swords and clubs, imagine these 11 disciples standing there with two measly swords saying, we're going to fight you off. It's not going to work. That's not what he's talking about. But also, I think a better way even to translate it is enough is that's enough. Or that's enough of that talk about swords. Stop talking. Jesus is ending the conversation because they just don't get it. And then if we look forward, if we look just for a second forward with me up to verses 49 and 50, we're going to see that the crowd arrives to arrest Jesus, and we'll look at this more in a bit. And the disciples ask, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Again, imagine them pulling out their two little swords. Not going to do a whole lot. And one of them takes the sword, and they strike the servant of the high priest, they cut off his right ear, and Jesus responds, no more of this. So Jesus explicitly denounces their attempt to physically fight here. So this is, Jesus is making it very clear. No, I don't intend for you to physically fight. I don't want you to strike the, the, the ear off of this servant. That's not what this is about. And then if you look through the rest of the New Testament, I think it becomes even clearer. There's a lot of passages that speak to this. I'll just mention a couple. John 18, 36. This is right after Jesus' arrest in the Gospel of John. He's talking with Pilate. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4 For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Our weapons are not of the flesh. And Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly, in the heavenly places. Where does our battle take place? Is it with physical swords? No. Our battle is a spiritual battle against the spiritual forces of this present darkness. So again, going back, we see that the disciples misunderstand their master. And we do the same thing all the time. 
even if it's not always or even often with physical swords, I think sometimes the church wants to fight the same way that the world fights. And we end up fighting a misguided war with the wrong motives and the wrong weapons. We do not fight the war that the world fights. So if we want to fight, if you really want to fight, then worship, do mercy ministry, give sacrificially, come hear the preaching of God's word, pray, do evangelism. Let's do the work of the church that Christ has given us to do with the weapons that he has given us to do, because those weapons are far more effective than physical swords. And when we do evangelism, let's not do it the way that the world would do it. I know it's really common if you go on Facebook and in my time hanging out with young adults, I don't know if it's used as much now, but there's this phrase, whenever there was an argument, if someone would do kind of a light drop moment where they would kind of hit the big argument, there'd always be this phrase, ooh, you wrecked them. Oh, you really destroyed that person. As Christians, do we fight to wreck people? Do we make arguments to destroy people? No, we don't fight the way the world fights. No, we do evangelism to win people, not to destroy them. We want to see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We're fighting for people. And I wish I could spend a lot more time there, but we've got to keep moving because, again, this passage is really long. So the deepening disloyalty, it progresses from false confidence to misunderstanding, and then it moves on to desertion. See that Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He was late at night with his disciples, and in verse 40 he tells them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he repeats that same command again in verse 46. Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus knows. He knows what his disciples are about to go through. He knows the war that is about to be waged against them. And so he encourages them to pray. And then Jesus himself goes up, and he prays. And the intensity and the agony of Jesus' prayer are so vivid in this passage. It says that he was in agony. In agony. And he prayed earnestly. And his sweat dropped from his body like great drops of blood. Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. He knew what his arrest would mean. That it would mean his suffering. And it would mean his death. And it would mean more than just physical pain. Because Jesus was going to bear the weight of the wrath of God against him. So Jesus is in agony. We see that the Father hears his prayer. And sends an angel that comes and strengthens him. And encourages him. But still Jesus prays with anguish and with agony. And then he goes back to his disciples. And what does he find his disciples doing? They're sleeping. My wife, Lexi, is a labor and delivery nurse. And so sometimes she tells me about a mother who is in the throes of labor. She's in anguish and agony. And the father is just sitting there on the chair, asleep. And she's always so frustrated by that. She wants to go up to the man and shake him and say, do you not see that she is in pain? Do you not see that you need to be comforting her right now? And that's obviously ridiculous to us, right? But here the disciples, Jesus is in anguish. 
Jesus is in agony, and he's told them, go and pray, and they fall asleep. He comes back and he says, why are you sleeping? Jesus was going to undergo an agony that was so far more than any woman in labor. And that's not to say that woman in labor is not in pain. It's a pain I will never experience. But Jesus' anguish and agony is a pain that none of us will experience ever. His anguish and pain were intense, and they slept. And it's in that moment that Judas arrives with a large crowd, and here we see the open betrayal of Jesus. And there are a couple things in the text here that make the betrayal of Jesus even more obviously wicked and sinister. The first, if you look with me to verse 47, it says, While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. The man who betrayed Jesus was one of the twelve. Luke adds that intentionally. He was one of Jesus' closest companions, probably one of his dearest friends. The man who had been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. The man who had assisted him, who had seen miracles, who had joined with the other disciples in going out and preaching the gospel and casting out demons. And here, that man, one of the twelve, is betraying his Lord. But he's not just betraying him. He says that he's betraying him with a kiss. He's betraying Jesus with a sign of love and affection. Think of the hypocrisy and treachery there. It puts Benedict Arnold to shame. And Jesus points out his hypocrisy in verse 48. And then he points out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who were arresting him in verses 52 and 53. And then notice the last sentence in this section. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Again, Jesus is reminding us all through this passage, this is the power of darkness. This is the work of Satan. And then lastly, the deepening disloyalty moves all the way to denial. They arrest Jesus, they bring him to the high priest's house, and Peter follows at a distance. A little bit of a foreshadowing there of what's going to come of Peter following at a distance. And there was a courtyard in the middle of the house, and Peter, along with some of the crowd and probably other bystanders, they gather in this courtyard, and they start a fire, and they gather around. And while this is happening, a servant girl recognizes Peter, and she points him out to the crowd. She says, this man was with him. And Peter denies it. Woman, I do not know him. And someone says again, you also are one of them. And again, Peter replies, Man, I am not. And an hour later, another insists, Certainly you are with Jesus. You're a Galilean. I can tell by your accent. And Peter responds, I do not know what you are talking about. Oh, Peter, the man who was so confident in his abilities, the man who thought you would go to prison for Jesus, you would be put to death for Jesus, and here he is, keeping his distance from Jesus, and denying that he even knows him. And again, we do this all the time. We come to church on Sunday, and we boldly proclaim, Jesus, I'll do anything for you. 
all for Jesus. I surrender. I surrender all. And then an opportunity comes for us to speak about Jesus with a coworker, with a friend, with a classmate. So what do we do? We stay silent. Because we don't want to be associated with Jesus. It's so easy for us to laugh at Peter's self-confidence and then his failure. And then we remember that we do the exact same thing. So Peter denies Jesus the third time. The rooster crows. It all happened just as Jesus said it would. And then in verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Imagine being in Peter's place here. In the confusion and the anxiety and the stress of the moment, he had gone into self-preservation mode. He had forgotten Jesus' words. He had forgotten his own bold declaration. But the rooster crowed. And Jesus and Peter turns and looks at Jesus. And Jesus turns and he looks back at Peter. And their eyes meet. And Peter remembers. Jesus' look convicts him. And Jesus' look breaks him. It says, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out, and he wept bitterly. And Jesus remained in custody, and he was beaten and blasphemed. So the point here for us isn't just, here's how not to be a traitor. Again, the point is, we are all traitors. There's not one person in this room or one person on this planet who is not betrayed, blasphemed, deserted, or denied our Lord. And guess what? If we want to respond to this passage the way that we should, then we should read it and we should weep. We should read the agony, abandonment, betrayal, denial, beating, and mocking of the King of Glory at the hands of sinful, wicked men. And we should weep. Because this is our sin that is on display in all of its gory, humiliating reality. This is us. We are all traitors. We have all denied our Lord. by the end of this passage, Jesus has been utterly betrayed, deserted, denied, or otherwise mistreated by every person. So all is lost, right? Satan has won his battle, right? Wrong. No, Satan is not victorious. The beauty of this passage is that running right alongside the treachery and betrayal of mankind is the loving and saving work of Jesus. Look with me in verse 50 and 51. I want you to notice here Jesus' kindness, even to those who arrested him. And one of them, we know from other gospel accounts, that this is Peter. Peter struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. The last recorded miracle of Jesus before his death and his resurrection was to heal one of the very men who had came to arrest him. Let that sink in for a second. This is the love 
and friendship of Jesus to sinners and traitors. We are all traitors, but Jesus is a friend for traitors. That's our second point. Jesus is a friend for traitors. We're just going to look very briefly here at four things that Jesus does as a friend for traitors. Jesus intercedes. Jesus submits. Jesus represents. And Jesus atones. So first, we see that Jesus intercedes. When Jesus looked at Peter, he convicted him of his sin. But in a way, when Jesus looked at Peter, their eyes met. It was a way that Jesus restored Peter. It was a look of conviction and a look of grace. And it was a gracious look because it reminded Peter of Jesus' prediction of his denial. And it also probably would have reminded Peter of all of the other words of Jesus at the beginning of our passage. Right away, if we go right back before Jesus' prediction in verses 31 and 32, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. According to Jesus' words, Peter would fail. But he would only temporarily fail. And he wouldn't ultimately be lost. And why would he not ultimately be lost? Because Jesus prayed for him. When, we're, when any of us are going through any sort of trial or hard season of life, it should be a really great comfort to us if we go to church and we talk with one of our friends and they say, this week, I have been praying for you. Especially if you know that they mean it and they actually have been praying for you, not just saying, I'll pray for you. Not doing that at all. When our friends pray for us, it's a source of encouragement. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. In the midst of life's hardest trials and the attacks of Satan, what comfort should it bring to us to remember that Jesus says, I'm praying for you, and I have prayed for you? That should bring us so much more comfort than even a friend saying that they pray for us. Because we can endure the trials because Jesus intercedes on our behalf. So Jesus is a friend for traitors, first because he intercedes, and second, because Jesus submits. And this is a big theme throughout this passage. We see first that Jesus submitted to his Father in his earthly ministry. He came and he submitted in suffering and death to the will of his Father. Look at verse 42 with me in the passage. When Jesus prayed, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then Jesus also submitted the whole way through this passage, even to wicked men. And this should amaze us. Jesus didn't fight back when they came to arrest him. He submitted to arrest. He submitted to being un unlawfully treated. He submitted to being beaten and mocked. And from our initial perspective and reading of this passage, we could say, it looks like Satan is winning. But it's actually through Jesus' willing submission to suffering that Jesus wins his battle. Jesus didn't wage war the way that his disciples wanted him to wage war. And he didn't wage war the way that the world wages war. 
Jesus waged war and was victorious by doing exactly what looked like losing. He submitted himself and gave himself up even to death. So Jesus is a friend for traitors because he intercedes and he submits. And third, because he represents. This is Jesus standing in the place of sinners. And this is seen in a couple places in the passage. The clearest, I think, is verse 37. Jesus quotes here from Isaiah 53, verse 12. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus stood in the place of transgressors and sinners, and he took the treatment that they deserved. And I think, like Peter, sometimes we are so ashamed to be associated with Jesus. We're so not willing to be associated with Jesus. But again, think about this, that Jesus, the innocent, perfect Lamb of God, did not consider it beneath him to be associated with us. Jesus represented us. He was substituted for us. And he bore all of the disgrace of our sin. That's tied right in with the last way we see that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And that's that Jesus atones. The passage in Isaiah 53 famous for how clearly it talks about what we call the substitutionary atonement. That Jesus was bearing the weight of the wrath of God as a substitute for lost sinners. The passage in Isaiah 53 goes on and says, He was numbered with the transgressors, which is quoted in our passage, yet he bore the sin of many. Jesus and his representation for us, his substitution for us, stood in our place specifically to atone for our sin, to bear the wrath of God that we deserved for our sin. And look again with me to Jesus' agony in the garden in verse 42. He prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In the garden, Jesus' agony was so strong because the cup that he would be drinking was the cup of his suffering and the wrath of God. So, in all of Jesus' pain, in every blood-like drop of agonizing sweat, in every bitter betrayal, in every act of treachery, all the way to the cross, Jesus was taking on himself the wrath and judgment of God in the place of his people so that we might be called free and forgiven before God. And that is the gospel. That is the good news. As the great old hymn, Man of Sorrow, says, I love this hymn. It actually gets its title in the phrase Man of Sorrows from Isaiah 53. It says, Man of Sorrows, Jesus, the man of sorrows, agonizing in the garden. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, 
vile and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. At the heart of the gospel is Jesus' love for guilty traitors and sinners, and his love that led him to bear the weight of their sin in his body on the cross, that we might be forgiven and free. We are all traitors, but Jesus, he is friend for traitors. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for sending your Son, that he would come, that he would love us in the ways, even in the midst of our treachery, even in the ways that we sinned against him, have mocked him and denied him, that he would still intercede for us, that he would keep us and preserve us, that he would represent us, be associated with us, stand in our place. He would bear the weight of your wrath against sin on the cross. That we could be forgiven. Father, we praise you. Help us to sink into our souls. Help us to love Christ and the work that he has done. Instead of being boldly self-confident, let us find our confidence and our hope by looking to Jesus. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.